right, join me in Job chapter 3. Job 3, we'll look at the whole chapter today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we approach this portion of your word that is a weighty, heavy portion of your word, and as we observe the depths of the grief of your servant Job, may we learn to weep with those who weep. May we yet again find our faith strengthened and lifted up as well. For you alone are perfectly just. The greatest depths of the ocean declare your perfections even as the highest peaks. Your wisdom transcends our understanding. When we are at a complete loss, teach us, O Lord, to trust not in our own reason, our own intuition or understanding, but teach us to seek your face and to rest in your unchanging perfection. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. If you would stand once again for the reading of God's word, Job chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. And after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night... Let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept, and I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voices, voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly, and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden from uh, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. 
For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is God's word. You may be seated. At the end of chapter 2, we saw that Job's friends came to give him comfort, and in some sense they failed in that endeavor, and that comfort is an active uh, thing. And we uh, see the conclusion of chapter 2, that they didn't speak a word to him for seven days because they saw that his suffering was very great. And his suffering is continuing to be expressed here in chapter 3, and not just physical suffering, but we see an emotional pain. Um, It is not the friends who break the silence, but it's Job who breaks the silence in chapter 3. We enter now into the, the poetic section of this book and the beginning of the discussion between Job and his friends. And this section is often what is called in Scripture a lament or even a soliloquy, which is saying what you think without really any regard for who's around you, even though they may be around you. Job may not even be talking to God or his friends, but simply expressing his thoughts and feelings. There are three verses or strophes in this uh, chapter. Um, Verses 1 through 10, Job curses the day of his birth and his conception. Verses 11 through 19, he questions why his life was sustained from birth. And verses 20 through 26, he questions why he continues to live at all. Uh, This is one of the greatest and perhaps the heaviest lament in Scripture. Um, Psalm 88 is, is largely considered to be one of the other great ones, and we'll sing that afterwards. But even Psalm 88 begins... O Lord God of my salvation. There's not a positive word in Job chapter 3. And the great question that that we ask and that, that begins to become asked during this poetic section is who's right and who's wrong? Is Job wrong to talk this way? Um, and in some sense, that I think that question is above us. But we know when God speaks to Job at the very end of the book, um, that there's two things there. That first of all, Job is reduced to repentance. In Job chapter 42, he's reduced to saying, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And he says, therefore I despise myself and and repent in dust and ashes. So we know that not everything Job says in this book is, is purely perfect. But also, God himself commends Job on the whole in in 42.7. After the the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So we know those two things are in balance when Job speaks. I think a sermon trying to divide everything he says into two bins of right and wrong is is beyond the point of the passage. Um, and I think the purpose of this passage is, first of all, to continue to express the depth 
of Job's agony, and in particular his emotional agony. And secondly, I think it sets up the rest of the discussion between Job and his friends. Um, and as much by what he does not say, as by what he says, and we'll get into that. So we should, I think, place ourselves into the shoes of Job's friends and try to hear what they were hearing when Job began to speak this. I think we've probably all been through that discomfort or even shock of being in, in the presence of somebody who begins to just sort of vomit their emotions, their heart begins to be turned inside out, and we can picture being in, jo- in the, shoes, uh, the shoes of Job's friends as he begins to speak. So today I just want to simply work our way down through this lament and then conclude with some considerations and some implications. So it begins, just, this is an expression of despair. In verse 1, after this, after, after his friends didn't speak to him for seven days, it says, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. We know that Satan said that, that Job would curse God to his face, but here we see Job cursing the day of his birth, but we don't see Job cursing God. Also, some scholars think he's, he's cursing his birthday as if he's wanting to erase his birthday for the rest of his life so he doesn't have to think about. That's not what he's saying. Kelly said, maybe we should sing happy birthday this week. No. This is a man who is in anguish of soul and body to the point that he is cursing his own birth. Really two things here, his birth and conception. He says in verse 3, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. So personifying the night that that declares there's a, a new baby boy just conceived this moment. That night should die. That night should perish. Let it be condemned to death. Uh, We see his cursing of his birth first and then his conception. Uh, In verse 4, let that day, the day of his birth, be darkness. May God above seek it, not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. There's almost a direct contrast here between what Job says in what God said at the beginning of creation. When God said, let there be light, Job is saying, let that day be darkness. I don't want that day to be a part of creation anymore. Uh, For God to seek something is, uh, Christopher Ashe says, it's the opposite of forsaking it. It's to care for it. It's to watch over it. Job says, I don't want God to seek. I want him to forsake that day. And of course, darkness, darkness is a sign of judgment. Um, Isaiah 5.30, if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. So, so Job wants to, to turn that day, the day of his birth, over to darkness, over to chaos and evil. He's even saying, damn that day I was born to the pit of hell. It's that strong. As Peter says of the angels, of the fallen angels in Second Peter 
verse 4, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. That, that's where he wants that day of his birth. And then he turns to his conception um, the night that said a man is conceived. In verse 6, he begins to curse his conception. That night, let thick darkness seize it, but not let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Um, it's, this is a leap year. It's kind of like February 29 on any other year. Let, let, it, let my day of the birth be gone like that from the calendar the, or, or my conception. He says, Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let, let there be no conception on that night. And, and may even the intimacy that conceived him never find expression. May his parents never have enjoyed their embrace that night. Verse 8, let those who curse it, let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. So he, Leviathan is, will come up again through this, this book. Um, and he's, he's, Pictured as, as this great chaos monster, water dragon, um, and, and really a monster that's prevalent in the mythology of the day even, uh, a monster that is, is viewed as swallowing the moon and the sun or removing light uh, from the world. Of, of, uh, one commentary says that Leviathan represents a supramundane power, probably the dragon the enemy of light, who in old Eastern traditions is conceived as ready to swallow up sun and moon and plunge creation into original chaos or darkness. So we see this in Scripture as well, not just the mythology of the East, but um, Psalm 74:14. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. In Isaiah 27:1, in that day... The Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So, so in some sense, this dragon is probably best correlated with, with the devil, with, with the Satan. And Job, what he's saying in, this, in essence is, if there are soothsayers, magicians who can rouse up even Leviathan himself, to bring the day of my birth back to, to darkness, to never having existed at all. Let that be so. In verse 9, let the stars of its dawn be dark. Again, maybe an illusion of Venus and Mercury, the morning stars swallowed up by Leviathan. Let it be dark. Let, hope, let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Just let, let that day, that night of my conception be deleted from the annals of history. Why, why is he so opposed to this day? We see in verse 10, uh, ultimately it failed him. He feels like that day, that night of his conception failed him. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. His fight for that night is entirely because he was conceived on it. 
because it didn't remove from him the trouble that he's now experiencing. I just think comes to my mind of a happy child like many of the children in here. You don't know what they're going to grow up to become or the experiences they're going to have, but maybe uh, uh, in years past during like World War II when one grows up and goes to war and, and he comes home and he says, the, the things my eyes have seen. If I had never been born, I would not have to see what I now see that torment me. And so I think we can imagine as Job's cracking voice begins to speak and his friends with the dust of mourning on their head turn and look at him and as he begins to speak, their eyes just get wider and wider. This is what Job is saying. This is what he's going to speak after all of this. And Job is far from finished. The next section here, beginning in 11, he basically says, If I had to come into existence, why did I not die right away? Verse 11, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Uh, Why did the knees receive me, or why did the breasts that I should nurse? Um, This image of the knees receiving could be the knees of the father. This was common in Roman culture and even in, in Mideastern Bedouin culture for him, to, the father, to take the child on his knees as a sign of legitimacy and essentially a, a perpetual care. This is my child. Um, but more likely, this is the knees of the mother, the knees of the lap of nurture. Why was I nurtured? Why was I sustained in life? Why was I given milk? Why was I not allowed to just die? <coughs> Why does he say this? Why does he long for death? He, in verse 13, he describes four, really, rest in four ways. For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. And then I would have been at rest. So for him, in the moment, death is viewed as, or Sheol, is viewed as a place of rest. Which... Really, we, we sometimes talk about it that way. If somebody died, they, they went to their rest. And whether they're a believer or not, sometimes we think in those terms uh, of rest. But really, Scripture does rarely speak of Sheol or death in those terms. Um, but I think we have to understand here that, that in some sense, theological precision gives way to emotional expression for Job. We know that Death is not just sleep, and Job knows that as well. Um, Job chapter 17, verses 13 through 16, he says, he, he, he basically calls Sheol a prison. Um, he says, if I have hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together? into the dust, he recognizes there's more than just soul sleep or or rest. Also, on the positive side, and really an amazing testimony and confession in chapter 19, 25 and 26, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, He will stand upon the earth. 
And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He knows there's a resurrection after death. So I think it's, it's true that, that his emotion is the dominant feature here. He says in 14, With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuild ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold and filled their houses with silver. So even, even as a newborn infant, if he, had, if he had expired, he would have joined the greatest men of the earth. The death is that great equalizer. And he would have been in their company. Um, then he, he returns to the same theme. If he did have to be born, why could he not have expired in the comfort of his mother's womb? Verse 16, Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Um, Jeremiah has a very similar uh, lament. In Jeremiah 20, in verses 14 through 18, again expressing, why, why did I come out of my mother's womb at all? He says, and listen to the similarity. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. The son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb so my mother would have been my grave and for her womb very great. Why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my last days in shame? See, the comfort of the womb would have been a better grave. For Jeremiah, for Job. It was interesting. I was thinking about I uh, always felt a little twinge of loss for my kids when each of them was born. It's like, welcome. It's not as warm out here as it is in there. Verse 17, There, there in, in death and Sheol, there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. So again, he, he, feel, he feels very weary by his trouble. And he views this Sheol death as a place of rest from earthly troubles and afflictions. Perhaps those wicked that ceased from troubling, maybe he has in mind the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans who came and killed his servants and took away his livelihood. No longer will they do that to him. And he could have, contrary to the other section, where he could have joined the great men, now he could join those who were oppressed and who, who were lowly in rest, that had been relieved from their stress and their trouble. Just ask briefly how how we account for Job's expression of Sheol in the light of the whole of Scripture. And a few things I would say. First is that this is very, very early in in revelatory history. And there will be much more about heaven and hell to be revealed after Job. That said, he clearly knows a lot because he expects a resurrection in the body. Another thing I would say is, of course, Job was a man of faith. So he may rightly presume the rest 
side of that equation. But I think the biggest thing, as I've already mentioned it, is that emotive, poetic expression of violent and gripping grief, that this is not meant to be a theological treatise on heaven and hell. This is an expression of the way he's feeling. You just hear his words and you have to ask what kind of, what level of emotional anguish you have to be in to say the things that he says. This is not drama. This is not attention seeking. This is the, the, the contents of his heart turned inside out. And no doubt at this point, Job has the full attention of his friends and as their eyes are widening, so too are their jaws are opening what is Job saying? And in this third section, he continues, if he had to be born, if he had to be sustained by the blessings of the nurture of his motherly care, why must he be kept alive even now? He says in verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Uh, I was thinking about the, the great pyramids, and many times the looters that robbed those didn't go in through the main tunnels. They've carved their own tunnels. You can imagine with whatever crude tools, uh, torches, just cutting your way deeper and deeper until you, till you arrive in that tomb. And then they, you can imagine the high fives, the rejoicing. At, Look at what we found in this burial, the, the, the treasure. He says, that's how I feel about death. I would dig my way, mine my way to death because it's, it feels like a great treasure to me. You must remember that Job was reduced to absolutely nothing, brought to the very rim of death. His possessions, his status, his children were removed. In one sense, his wife, uh, was taken from him in a, perhaps an emotional sense, and his friends are clearly viewing him as a hopeless cause. And moreover, and probably most importantly, everything that is happening to him feels like the curse of God. And there's nothing left to live for, so why does God keep him alive? And I think verse 23 is very important in understanding this this poem. Um, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Uh, this idea of being hidden, if you remember, if we go back to verse 4 where he said that he doesn't want God to seek the day of his birth because he wants it to be forsaken. It's the same idea here is that he feels hidden, he feels unsought or forsaken by God. So the question is, why live at all if not in fellowship with God? Even under the most blessed of conditions, that, that's true, a, a good thing to consider. If not in fellowship with God, why live at all? It's interesting, Job or Satan says in chapter 1, that God had put a hedge around Job to protect him from, from evil and to protect his family and his household. And now Job says that God has hedged him in. 
Christopher Ash says that it, it's a hedge of razor wire not to keep the marauder out, but to keep Job imprisoned in a miserable life. He longs to leave but cannot. A life that is locked into trouble with the key thrown away. So why, why does he express himself this way? And again, now we see toward the end here the most expansive uh, expression of Job's pain. In verse 24, for my sighing, or actually in the Hebrew is probably better uh, translated shrieking, uh, comes instead of my bread and my groanings are poured out like water. So grief and mourning and crying out have become his daily sustenance. This idea is somewhat common in Scripture of, of mourning being our uh, uh, the food of the greeting person. Psalm 80, verse 5, You have fed them with the bread of tears and have given them tears to drink in full measure. Psalm 102, verse 9, For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. He's, he's crying out, sighing or shrieking, groaning, and that's the sustenance, that's the substance of his life. Why is that the case? Why is he sighing and groaning? And certainly Job has ample reason for sighing and groaning. But his own stated reason is very interesting. He, he really, he cites his own psyche in verse 25 and 26. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So the the verb tenses here suggest not just that he was afraid something bad would happen, and then it all came to pass in the past, but they they suggest that actually his in, in the present tense and the future tense, his fears are coming true and they will come true. He has a, a present ongoing fear and anxiety and dis-ease and he, he's troubled in soul. And really, what is there left? What is there left to lose, to be anxious about? There's nothing. So what is the source of his trouble? And I think it will become more and more clear as we go on through the book that he is troubled by, in some sense, the, the disconnect he's experiencing. Why is this happening for no apparent reason? Um, David Klein's comments, he says, his anxiety is not because of his foul skin disease, nor even because he fears he may soon be dead, but rather because he is experiencing a shaking of the foundations of the cosmic moral order, which I think is true, but I think even more true, and it was hinted at earlier, is that Job feels a sense of forsakenness from God, that his way is hidden. That, that's the source, the, the chief source of his anxiety and his trouble. Um, Eric Ortland I think, sums it up nicely. He says, his curse on creation is tantamount to affirming that if he cannot live under God's favor and within his friendship, Job sees no point ever to have lived in the first place. In other words, the blessed life of chapter 1 means nothing to him without God and God's friendship. 
In fact, without God's smile, Job cannot think of a reason for anything in creation to exist. In the light of this, we see that for all its vociferousness, Job's curse is something like the photographic negative of his worship from 121. It expresses the same high view of God, albeit in a negative way. Job would not curse so terribly if he did not value God so deeply. His fear, the trouble in his soul, is that God has forsaken him. Remember, he doesn't know what we know. This just looks an awful lot like covenant cursing. And Job's agony is, is really beyond compare. And from chapter 3, we learn that this is not merely physical pain that he's enduring, but it's a tremendous emotional pain as well. And for all the darks that have struck him, the, the one that struck closest to his heart is the apparent loss of communion with God. For all that Job has said, I think it, it is beneficial to consider a little bit about what he did not say in chapter 3. And for that matter, what he did not do. Um, first of all, Job does not curse God, like Satan said he would. He curses the day of his birth, he uses very strong language, but he never curses God. Again, I'm not comfortable saying Job is flawless in all that he did and said. Um, is it true that Job would be better off having died in the womb or never, never having been conceived? The, the obvious theological answer is no, otherwise God would not have had him be conceived or born. Is it true that God had forever forsaken him? And the, the answer is no even though it would have been really hard to see from his vantage point. I, I just think about Jesus. If we see Jesus in the garden, we, we're told in Matthew that he was sorrowful and troubled even unto death, to where he cried out to God and he sweat drops of blood. And if we were to walk up to Jesus in the garden while he's kneeled over and say, Chin up, Jesus. God's got this taken care of. <laughs> We're not going to accuse Jesus of sin. Would we say to Jesus on the cross when he cried out in the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Give Jesus a theological lecture. You know why he's forsaken you. So that you could undergo the full pains of hell for all of, your, all, all of God's people. Of course, Jesus knows that theologically, and, let, and yet he gives expression to the agony of, of, of that experience by crying out, why? Likewise, I think it's worth noting that it's not a sin per se to see the positive side of death. Recognizing everything, of course, that it, that it is the last great evil to be defeated and, and it is unnatural and it's 
the sadness really of death stemming from the fall, all of those things, but that there is a certain sweetness and a rest to be obtained by going through that dark gate for those who are in Christ. Paul, of course, expresses this in Philippians 1, 21-24. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Calvin says here, and I thought this was striking, he says, we now have to consider the fact that the faithful may, generally speaking, sigh and groan all the days of their lives until God takes them from the world, desiring death, and yet they must submit to God's good pleasure, knowing that they are not their own. That ought to urge us to ask God to take us from the world and to look to that life which is prepared in heaven for us and which will be fully revealed at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in that way, we ought not only to see that God's children are permitted to long for death, but that they have to do so. For they do not demonstrate a true testing of their faith if they do not seek to depart from this world. Since, in fact, all things strive to reach their goal, and our goal is up there. Consequently, we must run until we come to the end of the road God has put us on, desiring that will soon happen. I don't think I think that way. But clearly, Paul does. He's, again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 he says, for we know that we that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may be found naked. For we, while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up. By life. He goes on to say a little bit later that we would rather be away from from the body and at home with the Lord. So again, Job did not curse God and Job did not fall into sin merely by, by seeking death like a treasure. There may have been attitudes there that were wrong about it, but in its essence... Secondly, Job um, did not give in to the pressure to adopt a doctrine of strict reciprocity. Um, in other words, that, that he, he got what he earned. I think Job's friends expected him to die, and if he did speak, this is probably the last thing they would have expected him to say. Seeing his his condition, they, they concluded that he had done something very wrong. Uh, in, the, in the book Crime and Punishment, uh, Raskolnikov is the main character and he kills, murders two women um, during the course of the investigation. 
There's a young painter, Nikolai, who had been working in the apartment building at the time of the murder, and he came under suspicion, and the, the police pressured him into giving a confession, even though it was Raskolnikov who killed these women. And that happens sometimes, right? They, they pressure somebody into giving a false confession, even to the point at some sometimes where the person becomes convinced themselves that they had per- perpetrated the crime. I think the punishing nature of severe and or lingering suffering can cause us to kind of cry uncle. To admit that which is not true in a a desperate effort to find relief. The silence of Job's friend speaks to their opinion of his fate. And as the discussion continues, they will be explicit. They believe Job committed some great evil to earn this. But nowhere in this whole lament does Job suggest in the slightest that he's repenting for something he did not do. And this really sets up the rest of the conversation, irking his friends and provoking them into a response. And the third thing that Job didn't do is that he did not take his own life. That's that's incredibly important. That, that Job is beyond depressed, beyond downcast. And he's willing to cry out about it in strong language, and yet he's not willing to follow through to take his own life. Suggesting here that he's actually still submitted ultimately to God's hand of providence. There's a reason why he's crying out, because this experience is not right and it's not natural, and what is going on here? But he's not going to take that matter into his own hands. This chapter, Job chapter 3, is a contender for the bleakest chapter in the Bible. Uh, we've been reading Ezekiel at home with the family. That, there's some in there that are, that are right up there. Of course, Psalm 88. But is there any hope to be had in this chapter? Uh, In a preaching class, um, a friend of mine preached Psalm 88. And he kind of wanted to make the point that sometimes there is no dawn to the lament. That's Psalm 88. Aside from from beginning with an address to his Savior, there's nothing positive. It ends... Unlike most psalms that end with positive conclusion, it just ends negative. And he preached it that way, and he didn't offer any hope intentionally to, to make that point from that, that psalm. And I think it was probably a little annoying, but I wrote on my sheet that there's, there's always hope. So I knew what he was trying to do, but I think we need to be careful to read these things canonically in the whole, in the whole scope of Scripture. And and this chapter doesn't give us hope per se, but it leads us to ask the question, where is hope when there is no hope? And to answer that, I'll just refer you back to 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia 
This is the Apostle Paul. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 